Jesus died on the cross for our sins, but that's not the end of the story. Theologian and pastor Jeremy Treat joins us to talk about all that the cross accomplished on our behalf, and also how that changes the way that we communicate the gospel to a post-Christian world. We're going to talk about the three main theories of the atonement, Christus Victor, penal substitutionary atonement, and the moral exemplar theory, and show that how all of these integrate with one another and create a fullness to the gospel and a fullness to the doctrine of the atonement that redeems all the aspects of our lives that are broken in this fallen world. Jeremy also shares his own experience as a pastor in Los Angeles with regard to spiritual warfare, the occult, exorcism, all that fun stuff, and the impact of the enlightenment on Western theology. So there's a lot of cool stuff in this episode. Tune in, enjoy, hope this blesses you. You're listening to That'll Preach. We have an interview lined up today with Jeremy Treat. He is pastor for preaching and vision at Reality LA in Los Angeles, California. He's also an adjunct professor of theology at Biola University. He's authored a couple books, uh, Seek First, How the Kingdom of God Changes Everything, uh, The Crucified King, and also a short systematic theology introduction to the doctrine of the atonement. So he's spent a lot of time thinking about the cross, the atonement, all the facets uh, of that doctrine. And uh, we're really excited to have you on the show. Thanks for joining us, Jeremy. Thanks, Brian. Glad to connect. Oh, and also Jeremy is uh, my sister's pastor out in Los Angeles. So special place in my heart. Appreciate all the work that you're doing out there. And yep. uh, yeah, it was really cool visiting for her baptism. I remember checking out your church and it was just a great experience. Great community out there. Oh, man, that's the best. I mean, those baptism Sundays are like that keeps you going in ministry. And yeah, for your sister to be able to experience that with us and then see her growth. Praise God. Yeah, so it's a great, great uh, treasured memory. But uh, man, you're out in Los Angeles, you know, and I'm thinking, wow, there's like a growing, thriving, uh, biblically orthodox church uh, that that holds to the doctrines of the faith, but also is very sensitive to the the culture that's out there and and trying to kind of toe the line there. Not even toe the line; it makes it, but but really try to bring the gospel into the local culture that's there. Mm -hmm. And obviously Hollywood's out there, showbiz is out there, all that kind of stuff. And it's fascinating to me that you've spent so much time thinking, studying, preaching, writing on the doctrine of the atonement, which uh, is such a central doctrine, but maybe not the most marketable of the, you know, doctrines <laughs> maybe, uh, but uh, so essential. And I'm just curious, how did you get started in diving so deeply into this one particular doctrine. What kind of inspired you? And how did you start on this journey and really studying the atonement? Yeah, I mean, I, like, I I started in seminary where, like, I just felt like, man, this is so central. And yet there's so many different views on it. And I was kind of confused of hearing the way that people were talking about it. I mean, the first, right. when I, I really wanted to read on the atonement, I was like, man, the cross, like, this is important. I want to understand it. I'm learning theology. And one of my seminary professors recommended um, Gustav Alain's book called Christus Victor. And he was like, this is the book. This is where you got to start. And Alain basically says, there's three options. Either Jesus died to satisfy God's wrath, 
or he died as an example of love, or he died to conquer the power, the evil powers. And he kind of says, some people have believed this in church history and that. And what it's really about is Christ died to conquer the powers. And I, I read that and I was like, that's it? Like, that's that's how we're talking about the atonement? Like, it's either this or that. And, and we're kind of narrowing down to those things. And so it's like, I, I got a glimpse there. and it, But it was convicting for me at the same time because I was in a place where I didn't really see Christ's victory on the cross. I'd heard about forgiveness and satisfying the wrath of God and my upbringing in the church, but I like it, it, it revealed a blind spot for me. So, so on one hand, like I recognized, Oh, I have a blind spot and I need to rec- I need to learn what Colossians two says about what Jesus accomplished on the cross, not only Romans three, but then I was also really turned off by the sense of like, it's either this or that. And then the more I read on that, the more that was the common approach to it is people are, have these narrow approaches saying it's this and it's not that, which just felt reductive to me. It felt like we weren't getting the fullness of the cross. So that's really a lot of what started my journey. And then as I, as I, you know, like started writing this book, I had a burden that I was looking in our society and seeing people are getting really excited about the latest social issue or the latest hot topic. And everybody's running after these things and getting excited. And then they yawn over the doctrine of atonement. Like it's this boring, old school, traditional thing for seminarians to talk about. And I'm like, man, I really believe like the cross is the apex of human history. And then it changes the trajectory of eternity. And so what I wanted to do was say, it's like, I want people to recognize there's something beautiful here. There's something amazing about this that we need to learn and understand. And yes, like the cultural issues and the hot topics, those can be important too. But this is the cross is like the hub in a wheel of truth. And if we want to have a, a, a solid, well-rounded theology. Like we've got to make sure we understand the cross. So that's a lot of um, what motivated me in writing the book. So you talked about the different sort of streams when you talk about the atonement. So all these Christians, they believe in this thing called the atonement, but what that actually means, there's different emphases. And And you said, you mentioned there was dying for the punishment of sins, the example, and then the conquering forces yeah. of evil or, or things yeah. like that. Um, how would you explain, like, maybe go through each one and just what what are the central components of that and how do they differ from one another? Yeah. Yeah, it's a good question. They're So they're all responding to different problems or different aspects of the problem, right? And so for Christus Victor, and, and the way these are traditionally talked about is as different theories. And maybe we can come back to that in a little bit of whether that's a helpful way of approaching it, but they're different theories. And so the Christus Victor theory is saying the main problem with the, the fallen world is that we are under the power of the enemy. Satan is the, is the God of this world, as scripture says, and we're enslaved to his power. And so Christ on the cross, he disarms the enemy of his power of accusation. And so he defeats sin, Satan, and death through the cross. And so that's that's what Christus Victor is proclaiming. Penal substitution is another theory. 
And that's going to focus on how we are. The problem is, is that because of our sin, we're under the judgment of God. We have fallen short. We deserve his judgment. His judgment is the penalty for our sin. And so Christ in dying on the cross bears God's wrath in our place. That's what the Bible calls propitiation so that we can be forgiven and God's wrath is satisfied. And then with the moral exemplar, that's the, uh, the, the third common theory. The problem is, is that we need an example is that we're prone towards selfishness and, and sin. And we need an example of sacrificial love. And so Jesus on the cross gives us this example of sacrificial love so that we can live as he lived. So that's the way that people typically talk about it. And again, like all of those, everything I just said is is true. It's like, it's easy to go to scripture and say, yes, we're enslaved to the powers and we need victory. Yes, we're under the wrath of God. We need propitiation. Yes, we're prone towards selfishness and we need an example of love. The the problem I would say, Brian, is that what's happened historically is that people have built theories around each one of those. And then it becomes, they become mutually exclusive theories. So it's, no, the cross isn't about Jesus' victory. It's about his example. Or no, it's not about his example. It's about how he satisfied God's wrath. And so you get this pendulum swinging that takes place in these arguments. And the way it ends up is you're kind of presented, well, here are the three theories, which one do you believe? Um, and so for me, that's like, what I do in the book is I just, I don't think the, the approaching it through theories is the best way at all. And honestly, nobody did that until the 1850s. So <laughs> for 1800 years, People are talking about the death of Christ in multifaceted ways. They're acknowledging victory, example, uh, propitiation, and more than that, adoption and revelation and glorification and ransom and cleansing and healing and all these different aspects of the atonement. And so I just think the, the way that it has played out in terms of these mutually exclusive theories is not a healthy way to have the conversation or it's not a helpful way to have the conversation. So I try and approach it in terms of rather than having mutually exclusive theories, we had the cross as a multi-dimensional uh, accomplishment and all of those dimensions um, are complementary and they're integrated in a whole and full work of what God has accomplished in Christ. What do you think happened in 1850 or that time period when those things started to become viewed as mutually exclusive, whereas perhaps before they had more of an integrated approach? Yeah. So, so in the 1800s, um, you have the, the development really of the university system, and that's being shaped by the Enlightenment. And what you have is theology more and more happening in the university more than in churches. And the Christians in the university were honestly trying to keep up with a lot of what was happening in secular fields in the university. And so they start borrowing language from other fields. So they start, oh, there's this theory of this in science and there's this theory of that and, you know, whatever field it is. And so they start 
using theory language and, and ways of thinking to approach the cross. And so they're borrowing from that, which isn't bad in and of itself, but I just think it's led to something that's not really healthy. So you have theories emerging. And then if you kind of follow the conversation historically, it's that pendulum swinging, that argument that it's like, no, it's not this, it's that. And it gets wider and wider and wider over time to where you have whole groups of people who are denying basically uh, things that are really simple in scripture of Christ defeated Satan and demons on the cross, or that the wrath of God is a, is a major part of the problem that we need to be saved from. It is interesting when you read through the new Testament, how depending on which stream your particular tradition emphasizes, you sort of emphasize some, and then you sort of screen out others as that's in there, but that's weird. So like, yeah, de defeating the powers and principalities, you're just like, yeah, okay. But then you go to like absorbing the wrath of God. You're like, yeah, I get that. You know, <laughs> but then there's also, you know, whenever you look at, uh, you know, um, pick up your cross and follow me, you're quick to be like, yeah, but, but that's not, I mean, that's just like a, that's like a number three tier level thing. The main thing is propitiation of sin and all those types of things. And I'm right. actually curious, it does seem like these streams fall down through uh, particular, like, I, I think when you think about like reformed, you know, theology, you think propitiation, you think the, you know, wrath of God uh, uh, absolved by the, the, the cross. You think about liberal Christianity or you think, you know, th there's a lot of the cross as the example, you know, yeah. with not a lot of necessary theology attached. And then maybe in Eastern Orthodox, I don't know if some charismatic circles, maybe it's more about the overcoming the, the demons and the, and the spiritual darkness around us. So I don't know. It's just kind of interesting how those tend to fall into different camps. I don't know if you had any thoughts on that. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think it's, that definitely happens. The one of my pet peeves when it comes to the doctrine of atonement though, is how people read that back into church history. Hmm. So Gustav Allain, who I mentioned earlier, he's the one who's mainly at fault in this because he basically said, okay, for the first thousand years, people believed that the cross was about victory. And then Anselm came along in medieval times and made it about satisfaction. And the reformers turned that into penal substitution. And then Abelard came after him and, you know, created this moral exemplar theory. And um, the problem is if you go back and read church history is that's just not true. I mean, there, there's certainly maybe like emphases of them, like in the early church of emphasizing the victory of Christ, but man, they're talking about propitiation. They're talking about example. They're talking about ransom. They're talking about all these different aspects of Christ's work. And if you, if you read um, Martin Luther, Martin Luther's talking about penal substitution for sure. He also talks a ton about the devil and Christ's defeat of the devil on the cross, and he's integrating those things. And so, like, if, if you look back historically, the church has been much more comprehensive in understanding of the cross, but it, it definitely has developed historically in a way where it's natural for camps just to lean into, like, one dimension of the cross, and that's all we ever talk about, um, and ignoring other, other aspects of it. And honestly, that's why I think theology matters, because... We, we need to have these kind of conversations where we're asking questions like, what did Christ accomplish on the cross? Or what does Jesus defeat, what does Jesus um, accomplishment on the cross 
have to do with this crazy like demonization experience that we had at church last week? Um, or, or what does it have to do with this situation over here? So that's where I think we need theology. We need people thinking, trying to read and understand the scriptures in a deep way so that we're not just, well, Jesus died for the forgiveness of my sins. Cause that's what I've heard a thousand times over. And I don't know anything other than that. Like, yes, he died for the forgiveness of our sins. That's correct, but it's not complete. There's, there's so much more that he accomplished than that. I'm really interested in the church history segment of it of this um because you get in the church history and they, they don't say things the thing the way that maybe we would say them now or it, you, you kind of you get into terminology debates and i'm curious in the early church would you say that um that they had a did they, did they tend to emphasize christus victor more but they had the other things there or were they or were they pretty balanced with the way they viewed this? I mean, what 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 was that like back in the? I feel like it, I feel like it depends on who you're talking about, right? Sure. So if if you're looking at like Irenaeus, um, there, there's probably a little bit more of like emphasis on victory, but he also talks about God's like persuasion in the cross. It's this moral example. Um, if you read Athanasius, like in Athanasius, it's all there in Athanasius. But I would say he's really like talking about immortality and and how like Christ defeats death through death and restores us into this sharing in God's indestructible life. But it's all there. He's talking about judgment and he's talking about victory. And um, and if you read like Augustine, it's all there in Augustine. Hmm. Uh, so, but I would say overall, there's a pretty like holistic understanding of the cross and people aren't trying to like itemize it to where it's this, it's not that. I so it you. feels much more organic yeah. and less like structured, like you're doing it in a university system. Um, but you certainly have people who are emphasizing um, one thing over the other. I mean, Anselm is a good example. Like Anselm talks about recapitulation. He talks about victory. He get like all of that, but satisfaction is like a, it's a driving force for him. But even there, like he's, he's different than he's, he's talking about satisfying God's honor usually more than God's justice, which is different than the way a lot of people think of Anselm. So there's just tons of nuance. Like it, I want us to like revel in the scope of Christ's work and the richness that we have um, in the history of the church. So instead of being like, okay, which one is the right way to view it being like, actually it's so expansive that all of these elements you can keep developing and talking about because they're all sort of there. In, in, yeah. In, and, then, and then the other, I think a step further at that is I want to acknowledge that it's multifaceted, but then I want to seek integration. So it's, it's not just like this, like buffet where everything stays in its own tray um, when we talk about the atonement, like all this stuff overlaps. So think about like, like penal substitution and Christus Victor. Those are two things that are often like pitted against one another. But here's the question when it comes to, when it comes to Christ's victory on the cross, how does he defeat Satan and demons? Uh, he, he doesn't do it through sheer power. He doesn't just like out muscle Satan and demons. No, like how does he do it? He does it by disarming Satan of his power of accusation. And he does that 
through Christ bearing our penalty in our place. So when, before I was a Christian, Satan could come to me and accuse me, you're a sinner, you're guilty, you're covered in shame. And he's actually right. But when I trust in Christ, he forgives my sin, he cleanses my shame, he removes my guilt, and he gives me his righteousness. So when Satan comes to me and he has he, he has no power of accusation over me, all he can do now is try and deceive me because he can't declare that I'm guilty, I'm shameful. Those are lies because that's not who I am. So Christ defeats Satan by dealing with our sin, removing our guilt and shame. So essentially it's Christus Victor through penal substitution. So mm -hmm. you, if, if you lose penal substitution, there is no victory. But it also shows like penal substitution is important, but it's not necessarily the end goal in itself. It's the how of how he defeats Satan, how he reconciles us to God, how he gives us a new life. So I want to help people see how all of those things are integrated. It's a great way of putting it. Yeah, I mean, uh, maybe even talk about all of these center around atonement. And that's that could be kind of a very abstract idea, perhaps in our modern age. How do you communicate atonement to people today? Yeah, I mean, it can be confusing. Um, and there's a lot of history behind that word that, you, you know, I would unpack in a classroom environment. But if I'm trying to explain it to people simply, I just say atonement means at one -ment. So the doctrine of atonement is how God deals with our sin in such a way that makes us at one with God again. So sin separates us from God. It tears us apart. We need to be reconciled. The cross is what brings that reconciliation and deals with all the barriers. It deals with Satan and demons. It deals with our guilt and our shame. It deals with our, you know, our blindness and the need for truth and an example. Um, so the doctrine of atonement is getting into how God deals with our sin through Christ's death on the cross and how that reconciles us to God. And then you're saying that they all work together. Like you were saying that the penal substitution, the, the Christ taking the penalty for our sin, that's actually how he defeats our enslavement to sin and death. And all of it is meant to bring that at one mint. Like they're all facets of how he's trying to reconcile us. Yeah. And that's where you've got to, you've got to recognize that there's a multifaceted problem. My problem is not just that I have guilt for my sins. It's also that I'm under the power of the enemy and I'm blind to the truth and need, need revelation. Um, and I'm, I'm in, in a state of death where I was made for life. So like, and we could go on and on and on. I, I've, I'm, I'm isolated where I need to be adopted into a family. So you have to have a multifaceted understanding of the problem to then have a multifaceted understanding of the solution. Chris's Victor, I think, is one that um, I remember when I first heard it, I was like, wow, that is a massive kind of claim. And I do think that in the circles that I'm in, I think probably you're in, again, the, the, the absorbing the wrath of God is kind of the, the primary thing. And Chris's Victor is, is lesser of a thing. But, but I, I do think that that's changing a little bit. I think people are now realizing that there's more to the cross than merely just the absolving of guilt. 
Um, but still, it can be a little foreign. So when you talk about Christ conquering powers of death and and um, I think the strangeness is it feels very spiritual. It feels very like, what, we're, are we like demon possessed? And then he casts them out of us. And But what's interesting is you read the gospels and you're like, that's a lot of what Jesus is doing. He's casting out demons. I mean, yes, he's feeding the poor and he's preaching to people and he's caring for the, you know, the, the maligned and he's rebuking Pharisees, all these things. But he's also, you know, mm-hmm. casting demons out and destroying darkness. Maybe talk on that a little bit. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, this is where it's so important for us to understand how we've been influenced by our society. We are Western people who have been shaped by the Enlightenment, which basically tells us science can can tell you truth and there is no spiritual realm. That was for the Dark Ages. That was when people believed, you know, they didn't have science and they believed in all this religious superstition. And so we've we've matured out of that and we don't believe in demons and all this stuff now. We we have psychology and we understand mental illness and we try and do that. So we as Westerners, we come to the Bible being way more influenced in those ways than we realize. And we kind of read the stories about demons in the gospels and we kind of moralize them. Right. We kind of think, oh, that like represents just like bad thinking or bad behavior. And Jesus is better than that. And it's like, no, it's it's pretty hard to read the New Testament and not recognize this is a spiritually charged world. And 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 we need to be corrected in that of recognizing that, oh, there, I, there really is a spiritual realm. Like Ephesians six is actually true. Like it's not just like a a chapter for VBS for kids to put armor on and pretend, you know, like there's literally angels and demons warring around us right now. God is good, but he has a, a, a literal enemy who is seeking to destroy and kill and steal all that's good in what he's doing. And so, I mean, when you get into Christus Victor, I think there's, there's kind of two ways I would want to encourage people to embrace this. One is read your Bible. Because if you're reading through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you're constantly seeing Jesus encountering the demonic. And and I just don't know how you explain that away as a Christian. It's like, well, I guess that, you know, the demon stopped trying after Jesus ascended to heaven. Like, there's nothing like that, right? So one is read your Bible. The second is look at the world around us. I mean, I, I, I that for me those two things have helped me appreciate Christ's victory on the cross is being corrected by scripture and realizing, Oh, like I'm thinking more like a Westerner than I am a Christian. So being corrected by scripture, but then looking at all that's happening in the world, there's just real evil all around us. And I think our secular society doesn't even have categories for it. You can only try and psychologize so much. And, and psychology is great. I'm super thankful for the discipline and for therapists. But man, when somebody goes into a school and just shoots up a bunch of people, it's evil. When, when one people go in and try and destroy a whole people group, like that's evil. Like there is, there are forces behind that and there's evil in people's hearts. And the Bible gives us categories for that. And then it tells us that not only is God going to do something about it, God already has done something about it. So Christ has 
has conquered Satan and demons. So they're still prowling. They're still at work. Um, but they're, the, the clock is ticking for them. And there's nothing that the demonic can do that's ultimately uh, not outside of God's power. And so the way I like to preach this to our congregation is uh, we have an enemy, but the enemy that you face is a defeated enemy. And he doesn't have power over you. Um, Christ has power over you. He reigns over you. So we need to be, we need to acknowledge the presence of evil, but we don't need to be afraid of it because of Christ. What are some ways you think the church can act on this? Let's say, you know, we're reading the New Testament, we're seeing the demonic forces in that battle that Satan's a defeated enemy, and we're looking out in the world and we're going, we can call that satanic activity, and that's a real thing. How does the church respond armed with this Chris Victor mindset? Well, I, I think I think part of it is, you know, as a pastor, I'm constantly trying to help people see what's the problem beneath the problem so that I can point them to the genuine solution, right? So when I'm when I'm pastoring people and they're saying, hey, I'm dealing with this thing, I'm asking them questions like, okay, what, like, you know, tell me more. What's been going on the last couple months of your life or like, like, and so sometimes in those scenarios, people like people are just giving into their flesh, right. Um, or they're operating out of wounds or a place of, um, woundedness. But sometimes there's like, I'll be talking with people and it's like, well, it feels like there's a spiritual attack element to this. Right. Um, and it feels like there's like, you're believing a lot of lies and you could approach that in just a purely rational way. Like, oh, you're like, you just have ideas popping up in your mind. But we also believe there's a father of lies. And it's his main tactic is to be putting lies out in front of you. And so one is, I think, to help people identify that of like, maybe there's like spiritual attack here. And that's part of the problem. I'll, I'll tell you one play, one way that this is really played out for us and the church here in Los Angeles is LA is a really hyper spiritual place. And there's a lot of like occultic stuff. So I'm, I'm constantly talking with people who have backgrounds in, in, um, in Wicca in weird kind of spirituality, like paganism type of stuff. And they just, and they don't even recognize it for what they just kind of think it's normal or like, Oh, I just thought it was this kind of, spiritual thing. Um, and th there's like deep stuff where there's connections there. Um, and especially when you get into like, like different cultures, there, there's a lot there in different cultural backgrounds that people do where they just think they just see it as, Oh, like I'll ask a lot of Latinos in LA, like they'll just say, Oh, I'm Catholic or, or I have a Catholic background. And then I'll often ask people like, was there, was it like, mixed with anything else. And before you know it, they're talking about stuff that's like crazy occultic stuff that had been synchronized with Catholicism. So I want to help people identify where there is spiritual attack or spiritual warfare, and then be able to point them to the cross and remind them of what Christ has accomplished and that the, the, the limits of the power that the enemy does have so that they can walk in victory in that. And that when they feel the guilt or the shame or the lies that they can declare truth and go to Romans eight and say, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Um, 
So to me, it's it's really practical in that we've got to be able to see how spiritual warfare is a part of the problem and then know what the solution is in Christ's death. And not only his death, but his resurrection as well, that he is risen and reigning and that we're united with him. So their influence, there's occultic practices, maybe in their family, maybe they've participated in the past. And are there other practices? I mean, do, do, are you... I don't even know. I mean, like, do you have an exorcism ministry? Like, I wonder about those things sometimes where it's like, man, you know, is it, do we need a little extra, a little extra spiritual juice here to fight some of these things? Yeah, I, I, I'll i tell you this, Brian, That that's an area for us as a church where we're, we're really trying to learn right now. Um, I think where we're at is we've recognized that spiritual warfare and even just people's spiritual history is a much bigger part of discipleship than we had recognized before. And I think we've identified more of that like problem and are still trying to figure out what it looks like then to disciple people into following Jesus in every aspect of life. And so at, at this point, I feel like it's a mixture of like prayer, like, like counseling and prayer and speaking truth and we're learning from different people. People have different types of like deliverance ministries. And um, I think it takes a lot of discernment. I think there it takes a lot of discernment in that kind of stuff because there's I think there's a lot of wacky stuff out there that's that's not biblical. But then I think there's also some like conservative Christians have so overcorrected in that that they don't know at all how to counsel people or disciple people in these areas. So I look to people like Sam Storms on this a lot. Sam Storms is a, I mean, he's a Bible guy, like, and and pastor for a long time, scholar, was a professor at Wheaton College, um, but but has written a lot on spiritual warfare and spiritual gifts. And I think his stuff is really helpful. And he's been a guide for us in a lot of ways of saying, how do we engage this stuff? How do we acknowledge things for what they are? How do we point people to Christ? help them to walk in the freedom that they have um, even amidst oppression. So, yeah, I mean, we just like, we, we just had an encounter at church recently that was really intense. And there's a, I mean, there's a lot of prayer and proclaiming of truth and asking questions and uh, just being persistent in all of those things. That is really interesting. Uh, so you're talking about how this one aspect of the atonement really actually is a lot of application where you're ministering in Los Angeles. I'd also imagine the penal substitutionary atonement, the, the Christ taking the penalty for our sins. I, I'm sure that that rubs against, I'm not probably not even just Los Angeles, probably any kind of, you know, culture is going to have a, a rub against that because it's dealing with sin. It's dealing with guilt. It's dealing with wrath, all these types of things. What has been your experience preaching about, penal substitutionary atonement and teaching about that in your ministry. Yeah, I I think that I mean it's all about how you present it, right? If 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 my sermon is basically um you're a terrible person and you should burn in hell the rest of your life, but uh Jesus is the propitiation for your sins, so trust in God. Then I think people it, it, that's going to be like jarring, right? Like it, it, people aren't going to know what to do with it. It, 
there, it's good news, but it's all, but it doesn't feel like good news. Um, so I think it's a, it's all about how you present it. I, I would say one thing that's really important when it comes to penal substitution is we don't start with our guilt. Um, we start with God's love and God's purposes for humanity and a, a beautiful vision of the kingdom of God. Um, so I think it's really important that we have a, a clear understanding of who God is and God is holy, but that's not the only attribute of God, right? Like we need to talk about God's love and God's justice and God's wisdom and God's plan. So I, I want to start with, with giving people a positive vision of who God is and what we were made for, and then trying to talk about sin in such a way as where I'm giving people categories for things that they're already experiencing, right? So if I come across as a preacher that's just saying, hey, I know you feel good about yourself, but really, like, you're terrible. That's different than saying, like, hey, you like you know that you fall short in so many ways. Like, you know that you're not perfect. You're, my experience with people and with, with non-Christians and Christians, people are carrying so much guilt and shame. So at one level, it is offensive to tell people that they're a sinner, and, and it should be. Um, but on the other hand, I feel like I'm kind of like, it's like I'm a, like I'm a doctor who's helping someone understand their diagnosis. It's like, Hey, the the reason that, that you're, that you feel so empty and guilty and shameful and lack of purpose is because you've separated yourself from God. Like you, you've made decisions in your life as if you know better than God and you're living for your own self rather than for God's kingdom, which is what you were made for. And that explains why you're experiencing all these things in your life. And then to be able to say, and God's holy, he's not going to excuse your sin. He's not going to look at it and say, that's fine. He's holy. He's just, but his response to your sin is actually to draw near to you. And he sends his son even though he didn't have to, he's perfect. He has no sin of his own to die on the cross in your place for your sins so that you can be reconciled and not just given a, like a, a, a second try, like a, a, a fresh start, but you're given a new heart. You're brought into a new family. You're given a new purpose. Like, man, that's beautiful. And, and, and I think there's times in that where I'm going to go deeper in explaining the wrath of God, right? Of, because of your sin, God is a just God. And just as in like our society today, like people love to, you know, talk about justice, man, God is a God of justice. And, and because of our sin, we deserve his judgment. We deserve to be separated from him. We deserve his wrath. If, if he didn't, he wouldn't be, he wouldn't be a good judge in that sense. Um, but being able to recognize how Christ bore that judgment in our place Man, that's good news. So to me, it's about how you frame it. It's about how you tell the story. That's a great way of putting it. And I remember that was a huge thing for me realizing like, I forget who said this, but it's like the Bible starts with Genesis 1 and 2, not Genesis 3. It's not like God created sinners and he's just been tolerating them until he wants to crush them. And I've always kind of the caricature is like, God's just like, he's always angry. And he's going to fire his wrath ray at us, yeah. even at Christians. And then Jesus at the last thing is like, don't do it. And he's like, 
okay, fine. I won't do it for you. But he's, but he's still kind of like wishing he could. And I realized that's just poor Trinitarian theology. And I remember, I think it was Sinclair Ferguson. He, he wrote about how um, people think that uh, God loves us because Christ died for us, meaning Christ died for us, then God changes from hating us to loving us versus uh, Christ died for us because God loves us. That, that, that Christ dying for us is an expression that like, while we were sinners, God provides solution for our sin because he loves us. And that was a, I was like, wow, there's a world of difference between how you view God, you know, from your own projection versus how he's revealed in scripture. Because I do actually think sometimes, you know, we, we think people are too soft, like that they need the hard jagged edge of God. And I think that's true in, in cases, but a lot of times people are just like, man, whether they had a really rough upbringing or they just already feel shame because of the, the consequence of their sin. It is surprising. You're like, wow, they actually just need to know that the gun actually, that the cross is actually a sign of God's love toward humanity and that they can, they can get in on that, that he is so gracious that whatever they've done, it can actually be dealt with. And that's that's a huge switch though. But I love the way that you, that that you were talking about and how, and I think the, the way of framing it is, is a good way of putting it because we, we don't want to ever diminish the reality of God's wrath, but framing it is actually a way of, of getting at the heart of the matter of like, it's not an expression of, you know, it, it's ultimately Christ comes because, you know, he's motivated by love to come and save those who've gone away. And I imagine too, I mean, I think the more goodness that you see in God, the more it grieves you that you would ever, Grieve him, you know, or sin against him. Yep. Yeah, that's why I think having the right view of God is so important. Because if God is this cosmic police officer who's waiting to catch you so that he can punish you, then it's like, even the forgiveness doesn't sound good. You know, it's like, oh, like I'm reconciled to him. I don't like that doesn't sound good. Um, But if you if you see God for who he is, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And he's going somewhere like God has this plan, this vision of renewing all things and drawing us into that. Man, that just totally changes the way that we understand our sin. And I start to recognize God is actually gracious to expose my sin. If I really see that my sin is destructive on me and others around me, God is gracious to call that out and invite me to himself. Like he doesn't get a kick out of, out of like punishing us and making us squirm. Like, no, he's a just God, but he's a loving God as well. So it just changes the whole way that you think of Christianity in general. I like the policeman uh, policeman analogy. It's kind of, it is kind of true. I think people can, can feel that from time to time that, the cross is like, all right, you're out of jail and just stay out of trouble. You know, and your whole life is just staying out of jail again or something like that, as opposed to really being adopted in new life and new family and all these things. I like, I like what you said about going somewhere. Like God's actually doing something in the world that you can be a part of. And, uh, and I, I think tied to that, the, the moral example, the, the exemplary aspect of the cross, um, just as a pastor, when you're leading a church, how does that factor in? just how the cross is an example. It's huge because it's so countercultural. 
I mean, everything in our society today is you use power to get your own way and to build up your own personal kingdom. And the cross is this example of like, we are a people of the cross. And Jesus says, anyone who would come after me must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. So I'm called to live in Los Angeles as a person who's constantly looking for ways to lay down my life to love other people. I mean, that's, man, if you do that, you will be so different. You will stand out so much in this city. Um, and so it's just a, it's a powerful, vivid way of thinking about what it means to be a Christian and to live under the cross. And, and it's practical because it, it shapes the way you do your job and the way that you relate to your neighbors, um, all of that. It's interesting with, with the moral example, you know, the cross-shaped life. I think sometimes we think if we just show that people will be like, wow, amazing. They're giving up their lives for us. But that's not what a lot of people thought about Jesus. And it's kind of, but that's, I think that's probably the sacrifice where you're like, even if you don't appreciate my service, or you don't see what we're doing at Reality LA as a benefit to the city, or even if you think we're whatever, that's not going to change your commission to serve people and to give your life up for people. I mean, that's a pretty powerful statement. I've been I've been memorizing the Beatitudes with my kids as I've been driving them to school this week. My wife is out of town, and um, and we've been talking about the Beatitudes. And the way I was explaining it to my kids is that it it it's like an inverse of the values of the world. And so the you know the world says blessed are the rich; those are the ones who are the winners, right? And God says blessed are the poor in spirit; theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The world says blessed are the ones who are really big and strong and who get their way all the time. And Jesus says, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Right. The world's going to say, blessed are the successful, the ones who are rejoicing in their victories all the time. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. So like it gives us this vision that that's totally inverts the values of the world. And it's showing we live in a cross shaped kingdom that really has a whole different set of the values where so a different set of values where power is made perfect through weakness, giving is gain. We experience victory through surrender. It's counterintuitive and yet it's beautiful. I think it's actually what, what people are longing for and it's all grounded in the cross. What are some ways you feel like your community or is, is tempted in those ways? I mean, or just, I mean, you probably speak broadly about the church in general, just to be caught up in, like you were saying to your kids, you know, blessed are the rich. Is that, you know, is that really what we're going for? What do the Beatitudes say? What are some ways that you see even, I mean, we're even as Christians, you're saved, you believe it, you want to follow Jesus, but we're still sinners. What do you see tempting and, us? Well, I mean, I'm tempted so much by, I'm. it's easy to tell you about people in my church. And I mean, in Los Angeles, we're tempted to think that you are your resume or your IMDB, you know, like, you you're you're defined by your accomplishments and who you know and how much money you have and where you live and like all of that like that's the temptation is 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 basically for worldly success but it's it's just as strong of a temptation for me is and to whatever sphere we're in we pride can try and get us to use that situation for our own glory so even for me as a pastor it, the temptation is 
to define ministry in terms of worldly success, how big my church is, how my reputation, whether there's kind of a buzz and whether the world thinks that we're impressive. Um, that's really different than the Beatitudes um, of saying we're a church that represents that. Like we're poor in spirit, but we're rich in Christ. And we're mourning, but we're mourning with each other because we're not alone. And we're meek, which doesn't mean that we're weak, but we bridle our strength, right? To use it for the good of other people. I mean, like, so I have to come back to that constantly and repent of my own um, fleshly desires for worldly success in ministry. And to be able to say, no, like our mission is to make disciples who follow Jesus, love one another and serve Los Angeles. That's success. And success is being faithful to that mission. And if God grows our church, praise God. If our church is small and we are faithful in hard times, praise God. Like we need to be faithful to him and leave the results up to him. Are there any ways in which you have found uh, like practices? I know you mentioned reading the Bible and, and looking at the totality of the witness of the atonement, but just make it on a practical level. How can any of us start to apply this multifaceted view of the atonement to our own lives, just yeah. in spiritual disciplines or ways that we can live our life differently. How do we make that tangible? Well, what I would say is kind of similar to what I was describing of how I pastor people is to learn to view your own heart in the sense of, okay, like what am I experiencing right now? And then how can I find the solution to that in the cross? Right? So if I'm if I'm if I'm feeling wounded, if someone wronged me, and that's like really affecting my life, then then the solution to that isn't just, well, Jesus died for your sins. Like, okay, that's true, but I'm talking about somebody who sinned against me. And so I need to recognize, like it says in Isaiah 53, by his stripes, we are healed. And so I can, I can experience healing of my wounds through the cross. Another example is if I'm experiencing shame, right? And maybe it's because of something I've done or something that somebody did to me, but I'm experiencing shame and I feel worthless and I'm beating myself up. Well, I need to recognize in that, that Christ bore my shame on the cross. I've been washed of that. And, and so I can, I can rejoice that I've, I've literally been given the honor of Christ in place of that shame. So those are just two examples of where we've got to recognize the thing that we're dealing with and then learn to see how the, the cross is the solution for that. That's why I always tell people that the way that we grow as Christians isn't just by trying harder, but by learning to apply the gospel to every aspect of life. Um, and, and so, yeah, just practically speaking is like learning to recognize whatever the problem is and then applying the, the cross as the remedy. When you were saying that, that was helpful. I'm just thinking about how that changes, even how you repent, how you pray. I mean, it just kind of opens up your vocabulary. If you're praying about a certain thing in your life, you can actually go down different avenues and, and you know, your prayers become multifaceted. And that can really open things up. And even just oh. the way that you encourage your friends, the way that you lead a group, you talk to people, uh, there's a whole there's a whole lot there. Um, man, this is really great stuff. Um, 
maybe bringing this to kind of a, a conclusion, um, what are some ways that the average layperson can start to dig into the atonement theology? I'm going to put a link to all your books. So definitely, I think, especially, you know, your uh, short introduction to the atonement, I thought was really great, really accessible. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Um, but are there any Bible passage, passages, any good, you know, introductory books besides yours that you you would recommend to people? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I... I mean, the first thing, of course, is just to read scripture and 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 try to recognize that you have blind spots and 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 then even like uncorrect beliefs. You have blind spots and false beliefs that need to be corrected by scripture. But learn to see the fullness of the cross. Um, when when you're reading the way that Peter talks about the cross in First Peter, don't just assume he's talking about it the exact same way that Paul does. He's emphasizing different aspects of it, right? So read tons of scripture. Um, in terms of books, I mean, I'll, I'll give you two recommendations. One is John Stott's The Cross of Christ. I just think is it's so good and that it's it's theological, but it's pastoral and it's practical. It's really holistic. Um, and if you've never read anything by John Stott, then that's the best thing I can do is point you to him. So his book is great. It, it's big. It's a thick book, but it's really powerful. Another recommendation, if you're looking, maybe if you've read Stott or if you've read stuff like that, read Athanasius on the Incarnation. This is a book that's written 1700 years ago, short, you know, less than 100 pages. And he's talking about the cross in such a profound, beautiful way. And it's different than we talk about it today because it, it's so old. And yet he's saying things then that, you know, we're, we think people are coming up with now for the first time. And so reading Athanasius could help you kind of break out of some of the typical ways that you're thinking about the cross. So those are a few ways. I mean, yeah, my book, like the, I tried to write my book thinking about like somebody in the church who wants to get into theology. Like, you know, you, you want, you don't just want to read fluff. You want to be challenged and think a little bit, but you also can't handle, you know, reading dissertations with a thousand footnotes. Like that's how I wrote the book is thinking, I want my mom to be able to read this and understand it and get some depth of the cross that she's been believing in and banking on for her whole life. There you go. All you moms out there who want to understand the atonement, we have the book for you. Appreciate you coming on, Jeremy. It was a great recommendation. Thanks for the work that you're doing. And it's a great, this is a great conversation. Appreciate it. Thanks, Brian. I appreciate you.